The lights are shining brightly. Part 3 of the Winter Soldier Taco AU An Adventure Zone fan fiction written by Anonymous Alchemist and Mary Whale Read by God of Laundry Baskets Summary Loop's first Christmas in the future Kravitz's first Hanukkah as a free agent. That's right. It's an all-the-things-you-prayed-for candlelight special. Chapter 1 Christmas in the Future New York, 2012 Barry's in the middle of redesigning some of the wiring in the Iron Man gauntlets when he's pulled out of his concentration by a tap on his shoulder. He nearly jumps out of his seat, scattering holograms everywhere. He spins around in his desk chair. Whoa, sorry, Loop says, holding her hands up. Didn't mean to startle you, babe. Captain America calls everyone babe. That's a fact that didn't make the history books. It always surprises Barry, her casual flirtation. She does it to everyone, though, he reminds himself. He's not special. It doesn't mean that she's flirting with him specifically. It's, uh, it's fine, he says. Just jumpy. I tried saying your name a couple of times first, she says, both explanation and apology. Yeah, sorry. I get kind of, uh, into my work, Barry says, and feels like an idiot. He should be used to this, Barry thinks. It's been months, and he hasn't managed to have a conversation with Loop where he comes across as a normal person, like someone who can get through a chat without tying himself in verbal knots. He swears he's sometimes cool, there's footage of him being normal, even charismatic, out there. He's great when he's having to give a presentation or something. When he's not expected to interact. When it's not Captain America talking to him. He dismisses the glowing schematics with a wave of his hand. What's up? She puts her hands on her hips and does her best Captain America voice, going all mid-Atlantic newscaster. I'm drafting you for a special mission, soldier. Barry finds himself smiling. I told you, I'm no soldier. Loop laughs, breaking character. Barry feels pleased with himself. It's nice that they can joke about the arguments they had during the Chitari invasion, now that everything's been over for months. Too bad, she says, continuing in her normal tone. I want to go to Rockefeller Center. Barry blinks. Why? She rolls her eyes. It's Christmas, Barry. I want to go see the tree. With me? 
Is there anyone else in this workshop? Loop says, looking around theatrically. Well, there's always Dummy. You could take him for a walk. He'd probably enjoy it. Barry quips, and Loop punches him in the shoulder. Dummy whirs and chirps inquisitively. He looks up from the pile of bolts that he's sorting. Barry waves a hand at him. Sorry, bud. Didn't mean to disturb you. Dummy chirps again and returns to his self-imposed task. Barry turns back to Loop. She looks thoughtful. You always talk to him like he's people. Is he people? Barry shrugs. Well, if he were people, he'd be at the center of the next philosophical debate around, uh, robot ethics? AI ethics? Him and Jarvis, which would lead to the media and Congress and legislation, probably? So no, he's not people. Huh, Loop says. Well, he's cool. Thanks, Barry says, pleased. He likes that Loop likes Dummy, that she likes Jarvis, that she thinks his work is cool and not dystopian. He had originally been hesitant to talk too much about his work with her, not because he thought she was stupid, but because there's a 70-year gap between their knowledge bases and he didn't want to scare her. Well, he didn't actually think he could scare her, but... He didn't want her to think badly of him. Barry has a miniature arc reactor embedded in his chest. He's used to the way people sometimes look at it. First with horror, then with pity. He plays it off. Sometimes it's nice to have a reputation for social awkwardness. He refrains from telling people that the tech keeping him from heart failure is ten times more advanced than anything else being made on Earth right now. That he's happy that he's got the arc reactor in his chest. It lets him be Iron Man. He's a genius, and the glowing light isn't a symbol of his failure. It's a symbol of his success. Of course, he hadn't said any of that to Loop. He had just remarked that she seemed to be adapting well, and she had looked at him like he was crazy and said that she's an experimental super soldier who fought Nazis with alien weaponry. Everything in her life since 1944 has been science fiction. He keeps underestimating her, and maybe he should be annoyed by that, but the way she keeps surprising him is compelling. Captain America is an icon, the target of his father's obsession, a historical figure. Captain America is right up there with Santa Claus and Jesus Christ in terms of moral character. Loop, on the other hand, cursed out Pierce Morgan last week on national TV and is driving her publicist to an early retirement. And she had told him that like she was proud of it, like she was happy to be causing some mischief. Barry thought the way she smiled was cute, and then hastily squashed that thought. 
he can't have a crush on Loop. It would be entirely inappropriate, never mind the fact that he's like twice her age. He'd be taking advantage of her in just so many ways. Also, when he was in high school, he had the worst crush on Loop from the fighting soldier Captain America anime. Barry's really hoping nobody has explained anime to Loop yet. So, meet me in the lobby in ten minutes, okay? Loop says. Barry nods. Sure, I'll see you there. She smiles at him. Barry feels his heart do a flip and thinks that he should really start working on this not-having-a-crush thing. Loop checks her watch and bounces on the balls of her feet. Ever since getting the serum, she hasn't been great about sitting still. She adjusts her scarf and her hat. New Yorkers are pretty cool about the cap thing, but there's always tourists. And normally she's fine with flashing them a smile and signing some autographs and taking photos with the little kids. But this is a date. Probably. Maybe dating is different in the future. Maybe dating is different because Barry's a billionaire. He's probably had a lot of girlfriends. Boyfriends? She doesn't even know if he likes girls, and the tabloids mostly speculate that he's like an android. He apparently doesn't get out much. Loop can see why. She means for this outing to be a date anyway. Or at least think she wants it to be a date. Maybe dating isn't the best idea right now. A few months ago, it was 1944, and she was in the middle of the war. But when would be the right time? She can either get over herself and go on a date with the nice guy who she misjudged the first time they met and go see the Christmas lights, or she can hang around being depressed about everyone being dead in her apartment. Sure, everything's weird now, but it's Christmas. Future Christmas. And she's going to go look at things with the future boy. She definitely said it was a date, right? Probably. Oh well. She checks her watch again. Hey, sorry I'm late, Barry says, jogging over to meet her. He's wearing jeans and a thick sweater and a winter jacket. I had to change. The first jacket let too much of the arc reactor light through. You're good, babe, Loop says. She's definitely not relieved that he showed up. Ready to go? Lead the way, Cap, he says, and she gives him an ironic salute, grabs his arm, and pulls him out of the tower and into the street. Manhattan, in late December, is all crowds and capitalism. That hasn't changed, though the flashing lights are more overwhelming than they used to be. The 21st century is all fast-moving glitz, and Luke thinks that, well, mostly she actually thinks that Taco would have loved it. But he's dead, so... She puts the thought aside. 
thanks for coming with me, she says to Barry, as they weave around pedestrians. Of course, he says. I haven't seen the tree in years. You live ten blocks away! I have a very full schedule, Loop, Barry says. She laughs. Try that on someone else, Blue Jeans. Oh, not the nickname. Why not? It's cute. NBC just likes making fun of my fashion sense, he says. Or lack thereof, Loop says, and he staggers as if wounded. She giggles. Not you too. Man up, Barry Blue Jeans, she says, and he laughs, straightening back up. That's Dr. Hallwinter to you, he says. Oh, I thought that was your father, Luke teases. Technically, Dad's Mr. Hallwinter, Barry says. Never finished his PhD. Huh, Luke says. Guess he was too busy with the company. He was always too busy with the company, Barry says, and she wonders whether that's bitterness in his voice. It's strange to think as Sladar is dead, stranger still to think of him as a father. Barry isn't actually that much like him, Loop thinks. Just a similarity in the profile, the obvious futurist leanings. But she can't imagine Sladar shutting down the weapons division of Hallwinter Industries. She wonders if Barry ever tried to make a flying car. Well, Dr. Blue Jeans, then, Loop says, and Barry laughs. She feels smug. How about just Barry, please, Loop, he says. Sure, she says. Barry, oh, quick, the light! She runs ahead, dragging Barry after her. He follows, laughing. They walk down the street. Tourists, snatches of holiday music, shoppers with shopping bags. It's nice. It's festive. There's still damage from the Chitauri attack. Blocks cordoned off. Lots of do-not-pass signs. But there's still strings of light up on the storefronts. Barry pauses at the corner of the street. Hey, did they do holiday windows in the 30s? Yeah, Loop says. Oh shit, they still do those? Oh, they definitely do, Barry says and grins. Come on, let's take a detour. Loop looks delighted by the Macy windows. The animatronics, the digital snow falling in the background, the ridiculously elaborate dioramas. She's rivaling the five-year-old, jumping and pointing in enthusiasm. Barry, look! Is that real candy? I have no idea, Barry says. She's gesturing at a life-size toy soldier made of possibly real pink peppermints, who raises and lowers a sword that looks like it's made of some sort of translucent pink rock candy. Or 
plastic made to look like rock candy. Maybe? Cool, Loop says. Shit, Taco would have loved this. Barry's surprised to hear Loop mention her brother. He noticed that Loop doesn't talk about Taco much. She barely ever mentions him, except to correct people about just who was wearing the suit half the time. It's public knowledge that Loop and her brother were inseparable, that a month after Sergeant Taco fell from a train, Loop flew the suicide mission that saved the Western world from a nuclear winter. It's private knowledge that Sladar told his son that Loop wasn't the same after her brother's death, that she never talked about it or him, and then she died. Barry tries to keep his voice from expressing surprise. Did you guys look at the windows before the war? Yeah, Loop says, a wistful tint to her voice. We used to go every Christmas. The windows, cause lookin's free, you know? And sometimes Rockefeller Center. Except they stopped lighting the tree after the war was announced. But it was just me in New York that year anyway. Just you? Taco stole my draft, she says, matter of fact. The asshole? She says asshole like she means she loved him. Barry feels terrible for asking. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to bring back bad memories, he says, a little hesitant. She shakes her head. No, no, don't feel bad, babe, Loop says. I'm the one who brought old stuff up. That's on me. She smiles at him, all showmanship and a star-spangled cheer. Sorry, Barry. The pink peppermint soldier raises and lowers his arms. A crowd chatters. Children giggle. The holiday lights play red and green across Loop's face, and Barry hates the way she's smiling at him, plastic as a soldier's sword. No, don't be sorry, Barry says, all a rush. I want you to tell me things. I mean, if you want to. I want us, well, I hope we are, the sorts of friends where you can tell me things, if you feel like, you know? If you want. Oh, God, he sounds like an idiot. But Loop is looking at him all soft now, so maybe he didn't screw it up. You're a really good guy, Blue Jeans, she says. I'm not great at talking about stuff sometimes. Well, clearly, neither am I, he says. And that gets a laugh from her, which is great. He'd like to be someone who makes her laugh, not just someone who brings back old memories. Guys, can we please keep the line moving? One of the department store attendants says, clear desperation in her voice. Sorry, 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 Loop says. And then they're walking again 
onto the next window and back onto the stream of people on the sidewalk. Rockefeller Center is super crowded and loud and Loop doesn't care about any of that because holy shit, that's the fanciest Christmas tree that she's ever seen. The 20th century has nothing on this. Oh, it's so sparkly. The future has some advantages, huh? Barry says, and he sounds pleased that she likes it. She leans against him. It's all right, I guess, she says, watching the lights on the tree glimmer in synchronization, the skaters below going in awkward loops and whirls. She can hear laughter, people talking about taking photos, happy holidays. It's cold, but they're glad to be here. There's holiday music playing from the speakers. She's really glad she stopped Red Skull. Thanks for inviting me, Barry says. She puts an arm around his waist. He's warm and solid, even through the layers of outerwear they're both wrapped in. He tenses for a second, then relaxes. Thanks for coming with me, Loop says. Yeah, of course. There's a long, very companionable moment while they watch all the people watching the tree. Then, Loop turns to whisper in Barry's ear. You know this is a date, right? Well, Barry hedges. Barry, Loop says and laughs. Chapter 2 that's a Christmaca to me. Washington, D.C., 1933. Kravitz has been, as R.Q. says, one of the good guys for almost six months when she turns to him and says, Hey, kid, I never asked. You doing Christmaca with us, right? They're on a mission in the middle of a war zone, and Kravitz has his legs wrapped around the sleeper agent's neck. It's not exactly the best timing. Kravitz hits the man's temple with the butt of one of his knives, because choking him out is taking too long. What? R.Q. aims an arrow above his head and lets it loose. Kravitz doesn't flinch as it flies past taking out whoever was coming up behind him. Chrismica, she says. You never said, and I assumed the Soviets weren't hot on religion, but your name is Kravitz. We do, Chrismica. You should come. Why are you inviting me now? Kravitz rolls to his feet and is at the computer a moment later sliding a CD into the disk drive so they can copy the files they need and then make a strategic retreat before a bomb takes out the whole operation and leaves them in the free and clear. The military doesn't know they're covering up a shield off, 
but the military doesn't know a lot of things. Kravitz likes dealing in secrets. Maybe that's him. Maybe it's learned behavior. He hasn't untangled that one from his conditioning yet, but he's found a preference, and that's enough for now. Liking things is a hint of something human. You know, RQ says, reasons. She lets loose another arrow. Hanukkah starts in a couple nights. I couldn't put off asking much longer. You ever celebrate before? Kravitz frowns. Holidays, especially religious holidays, weren't a thing in the Red Room. Religion was against official Soviet policy, and Russia fought against the Nazis in World War II, but anti-Semitic policies and the persecution of Jewish people was still popular in the Soviet Union, especially under Stalin. The Soviets just called themselves anti-Zionist, coding their prejudice to make it more palatable and less Nazi-aligned. Kravitz has learned a lot since defecting. R.Q. asked him about his parents, once, before she found out about the Reaper program and the Red Room and Kravitz's childhood. Raised as part of a class of child assassins, trained to kill without remorse, and think of himself as something other than human. Kravitz never knew his parents. He still doesn't know anything about who they were or what they did. But he does know that the children selected for the Reaper program were taken from the families of political prisoners sent to the gulags. The Reapers were children who, otherwise, would become undesirables, twisted into loyal agents of the Soviet Union. His name is Kravitz. He's already undeniably black. He's read about the doctor's plot and the night of the murdered poets. That, at least, one of his parents was Jewish doesn't seem like an unreasonable assumption. I've never celebrated, he says, instead of explaining everything to R.Q., R.Q. hums like she already knows what he's not saying. It's equal parts frustrating and enthralling, the way she can see through Kravitz like he's made of glass. She reads him better than his handlers in the KGB did, better than almost anyone ever has. Kravitz isn't used to being known, but R.Q.'s forced her way into knowing him, and he likes it her. Holidays are for people, and I wasn't a person, he amends, and then ejects the CD. We're done here. Exit through the southern door, R.Q. says. Fewer guards, quicker escape. ETA two minutes on the drop. Kravitz runs. He takes out two more guards on his way down the hall. Here's R.Q. behind him, but doesn't look back. She'll make sure no one behind them shoots him. He's got the front covered. This is another new thing. He trusts 
RQ to look out for him. He has a partner. It's been a long time since he could say that. The Red Room didn't like partnerships. Assets weren't meant to have relationships of any kind, not even professional ones. Kravitz draws a gun to break the window, jumps through it before all the glass is finished breaking, and tucks his feet so he hits the ground just right, rolling upright and onward. He vaults the fence, their footsteps behind him, then beside him, and he glances to the side to see R.Q. there, a faint grin on her face, bow over her shoulder, dark hair twisted into dozens of tight braids and wound into a bun. They keep running because there's a bomb coming and because people are chasing them. They duck through buildings towards where their helijet is waiting for them, waiting for R.Q. to fly them the fuck out of here. They make it just as the bomb hits. Kravitz doesn't wince when he feels the explosion rattle his bones, but he does grab the side of the jet to keep himself steady. It's an affectation, but it feels good to try them out sometimes. R.Q. snorts and then nudges him inside the door. Very dramatic. This is what I get for deciding to take a Russian spy under my wing. The birds are way too uptight for the drama. Why would an American agent turn a Brit? Kravitz asks, strapping himself into the co-pilot seat. They've achieved their mission. He won't be able to relax until they're out of the country, but the hard part is done now. He affects a Cockney accent, one of his worst, although his Queen's English and Yorkshire accents are flawless. Do you want me British, love? R.Q. laughs as she glides the jet up into the air. Fuck no, she says with feeling. It was just an example. She extends her leg, nudging Kravitz's foot with her own. So, Chrismica, two days from now, I'm making donuts. You're coming. Kravitz is silent for a moment, looking out of his window at the fire burning on the ground below them. I don't have any idea what you do for Hanukkah, he says, because it's going to be an issue now. R.Q. snorts. No shit, Krav, she says. Don't worry, I'll teach you what you need to know. I think you're going to like Hanukkah. It's a holiday all about revolution, miracles, and telling the people who have power over you to go fuck themselves. Kravitz turns up at the D.C. apartment R.Q. shares with her girlfriend two days later. He's still not entirely cleared by S.H.I.E.L.D. to be out on his own, but R.Q. is his handler, so he figures this is fine. He's done research. He knows Hanukkah involves lighting candles, and Christmas involves giving presents. He's still not expecting it when Istis opens the door 
and thrusts a sparkling blue bag stuffed with tissue paper at him. Kravitz, she says. Raven's flying Glockta's in the kitchen, so she's stuck watching the oil. But she says Happy Hanukkah, and I say Merry Christmas. Kravitz blinks down at the bag, then looks up at Istis. For me? For you, Istis says. She's wearing a large sweater she probably knit herself over cozy-looking leggings. The sweater is made of white yarn, flecked with all the colors of the rainbow, and the front of it reads in bright red lettering, Make the Yuletide Gay. Kravitz is wearing shield-issue black pants and a black t-shirt. He can't help feeling like a dark cloud encroaching on the horizon of Arcus and Istis's happy domestic life. It's your first Chrismica. You need this. Kravitz allows himself to look as pleased as he feels as he digs into the bag and pulls out a sweater, blue like the bag it came in, elaborately patterned with a white Star of David motif. There's a dreidel on the front of the sweater, framed by the words, You spin me right round. I made it myself, Istis says. I can't believe you showed up here in December in a t-shirt, Crav. You need this for warmth and so you're a part of Chrismica. You deserve to be comfortable. She pats his arm and then gives him an expectant look. Try it on? Kravitz isn't quite sure what to do with being told he deserves to be comfortable or with the arm pat, so he opts for obeying Istis's request, tugging the sweater on over the shirt he's wearing. Everything he owns is fitted. Loose clothing is impractical on a mission. It snags. It can hold you back. It also doesn't look as good. The sweater is oversized and baggy, and the sleeves are a bit too long. It's thick and warm and soft against his skin. He looks down at it for a moment and up at Istis, blinking in surprise. Oh, he says. She grins. I knew you'd like it. Did you even let him in the apartment before you made him put on the sweater? Calls our cue from the kitchen. No, Istis yells back, stepping aside so Kravitz can enter. Kravitz laughs, taking a deliberate step into the apartment. He sets the empty gift bag down. The lack does smell good, he says. Thank you for having me. I've been working on your sweater for months, Istis says. We're happy to have you. Istis has only known Kravitz for a few months, half as long as he's been on the side of the angels, because it took RQ that long to realize that Kravitz had no idea how to function like a normal person, and then she had to convince S.H.I.E.L.D. Kravitz should be allowed out into the world 
and not kept on constant lockdown. Kravitz doesn't know what national secrets he was supposed to uncover, getting pizza with our Q and Istis, but maybe S.H.I.E.L.D. just grossly overestimates his abilities. He knows he's more capable than many S.H.I.E.L.D. employees. His reflexes are faster, and he was more rigorously trained, and that the enhancements the Red Room gave him on top of his training made R.Q. bringing him in go much more smoothly than it might have for a non-enhanced agent. S.H.I.E.L.D. wants him on their side. So far, that means they're willing to make some allowances, including letting him come to Chrismica. Marcue pokes her head around the corner, into the hallway. Her hair is wrapped up in a scarf, and she's wearing a hand-knit sweater, too, purple with a menorah on the front. The sweater looks good, Crab, she says. You should wear more color. Come to the kitchen so I don't burn down the apartment trying to participate in your conversation. We're coming, Istis says, walking over and pressing a kiss to R.Q.'s lips. Please don't burn the building down. Doing my best, R.Q. smiles at Istis and ducks back into the kitchen. Kravitz follows them. He still feels like he's intruding but he's not going to offer to leave. He likes seeing the easy domesticity of R.Q. and Istis's life together. R.Q.'s a spy and a sniper. She has better aim than almost anyone Kravitz has ever worked with. She still seems normal when Kravitz sees her outside of work. She seems happy. Kravitz doesn't expect to ever have anything remotely like R.Q.'s life, but it's nice watching. It's nice thinking about belonging somewhere, the way R.Q. obviously belongs here, with Istis, frying potato pancakes in a slightly smoky kitchen. Istis walks to the window and cracks it open. Raven insists on making the lock does herself. She set the smoke alarm off at least twice a year for the past three years running. I make them the way my mama made them. It's a secret family recipe, R.Q. says. She glances back at Kravitz. Gotta throw some baking powder in with the potatoes and the onions so they puff up and get a little airy inside. Even a bad lakta is a good lakta but I make really good lakdas. I've never had one before, Kravitz says, because it's safe to admit that kind of thing around our queue. I have no idea what I'm doing. I know, says our queue. Don't worry. I showed Istis how to do Hanukkah right, and I can teach you, kid. As far as our holidays go... This is entry-level. Entry-level? Kravitz raises a wry eyebrow. Already the sweater and the food and the comfortable routine our Q and Istis have are a lot. If this is entry-level, he doesn't know if he'll ever be ready for anything more advanced. 
people who try this hard to include him. People our Q would probably call friends are new to him. I'm keeping meat and dairy separate for you already, R.Q. says. I'll do the blessings in the light, Menorah. You'll catch on quick. I offered to make chicken tonight so Raven could walk you through the blessings, but she wanted doughnuts, Istis says, shrugging, like this all should make sense to Kravitz. He should have done more research. He should have brought presents. Kravitz is getting paid by S.H.I.E.L.D., but his experience with capitalism is missioned-based. He lives in a S.H.I.E.L.D. facility and eats in their cafeteria. His clothing was issued to him when he defected. Buying presents for R.Q. and Istis is well outside of his current capabilities. We'll have chicken tomorrow, R.Q. says. Crav, you're coming, right? Kravitz does his best to mask his surprise. Am I invited? Of course, R.Q. says, like Kravitz should never have questioned it. Hanukkah's eight nights long, and so is Chrismica in this household. Unless you've got other plans, you're invited to all of them. Eight nights is a lot. That's over a week of Kravitz's company, and Kravitz has it on good authority, the authority of people in the S.H.I.E.L.D. cafeteria that don't realize how good his hearing is, that he's creepy. He's not good at emoting, and there are a lot of basic life skills he's never learned. He's covering all it up the best he can but sometimes his best isn't great. If you're sure you want me around that long. Kid, come on, you're my partner, R.Q. says, shaking her head. Istis didn't knit you a sweater just to be nice to you. She wanted to. We want you here. We'd love to have you for all of Chrismica, Istis confirms. She points to the table. Sit. Let Raven feed you. I have a serious question to ask. Kravitz sits. If Istis wants something from him, this all makes more sense. Besides, sometimes direct orders are comforting. There's something familiar in a sea of new. What is it? Istis sits across from him and looks him dead in the eye. You've been out of the Red Room for six months now, she says. I want to know, have you thought about hobbies yet? And follow-up question, you're good with sharp pointy objects. What about knitting? I could teach you. You'll just have to come over more often. Kravitz blinks at Istis, who wants to know if he has hobbies. Istis, who wants to teach him how to knit. For some reason, 
That's what makes everything finally click into place. R.Q. carries over a plate full of lactas, and she and Istis start bickering about applesauce and sour cream, and it's comfortable. It's comfortable because even when Istis and R.Q. are talking to each other, obviously a couple, they're making a point of trying to include him. They want Kravitz to be a part of this, their warm apartment, which smells like fried potato and onions, and the easy way they are with each other. They're not just inviting Kravitz to Chrismica, they're inviting him to have what he never got before, to be part of their family. Kravitz has regretted defecting to America a few times since R.Q. flipped him. Not often, and only for fleeting moments. But he's thought about what a giant leap of faith he's made, trusting R.Q., and knew there were a million ways everything could have gone wrong. Only nothing went wrong, and he's here, and he knows now, without a doubt, that he made the right choice. Istis turns back to look at him. So, she asks, what do you think? Kravitz reaches for Elokta because they smell delicious. He's tired of the frozen vegetables and the powdered mashed potatoes Shield serves. He's tired of holding himself apart from everyone else when there's no reason to keep his guard up as high anymore. Not here, anyway. If Kravitz wants people to trust him, if he wants to belong, he has to be willing to open up. He can't expect R.Q. and Istis to do all the work here. He has to meet them part way. I do like pointy things, he says, smiling at both of them. I think knitting sounds great. End of The Lights Are Shining Brightly